Hello and welcome to the Tightwad Teacher Podcast, brought to you by Element Opie Productions, elementopie.com. And now, here are your hosts, John Mikulski and Brian Brueger. Hello everybody, welcome to the Tightwad Teacher, episode 28, Media Literacy in the K-12 Classroom for January 17, 2012. Uh, today we have myself, I'm John Mikulski, and joining me is, um, as always, Brian Brueger. Say hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. And, oh, <laughs> this show cannot get any worse. You just you tanked it the first thirty seconds. You realize that? Um, and then also, uh, Mark Cockrell is also joining us again. How you oh, doing, Mark? Oh, trust me. Once you introduce me, it can get worse. That's, well, <laughs> you have. We have to see now. Well, let's let's jump right into it because speaking of getting worse, um, I, I wanted to bring up something that was I was alerted of, and actually, it's a good tie-in to. Um, a show we did two weeks ago, and it's also something I wanted to point out just to clear my good name in case anybody else saw this. So <laughs> two, two weeks ago, Brian, if you remember, we did a, a show and we were talking about New Year's resolutions that teachers should be making, basically as our, our pet peeve list of things that we thought in terms of tech they could do. Yep. And my very first uh, suggestion was to create Google alerts for things like your school and your town and even your name so that anytime those things come up in newspaper articles or blogs or things you know you have a heads up if something bad is coming down the line and just last week I got a Google alert for my name and I haven't really done anything overly notable lately so I, I wasn't sure what it was all about <laughs> even when I do do something notable it's really not notable other than just in my own head but um, anyway so it came up and I took a look and strangely, it was a um, news story from Georgia. So I open it up, and it turns out uh, the headline was, Stealing Copper Wire Can Kill You. And it turns out that someone with my exact same name is was in Georgia and decided that they need to get some extra money. So they got caught climbing power line or climbing poles and stealing power lines and then trying to sell back the copper. And they got caught. And I guess wow. I just want to I want to point out that was not me. <laughs> I would say that's probably a life-saving arrest right there. <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. I'm, there's got to be better ways to make money than to be stealing live power lines. See, and I'm thinking just let the guy, you know, get what's coming to him. <laughs> His punishment was just, man, just let him try it again. Yeah, it's probably yeah. less expensive to replace the line than to pay for years in prison, right? That's true. That's true. That's just let him keep keep taking the risk and eventually he'll get his, I guess. <laughs> which now again which brings up another conversation we had right mark uh, this is the second time we've talked about electrocuting things in like the last week <laughs> and here we it. go yeah well you'll have to look at the uh the last periodic table podcast to figure out what we're talking about there but uh before we get into our guest uh mark you got something to ask about or talk about well i i just wanted to mention that i i made a rather as part of my new year's uh, cleanup of, of you know the, the opportunity to take a random date on the calendar and, and make some significance to it. Um, I pay, posted on Facebook today, uh, just FYI, if I've recently unfriended you here on Facebook or do so in the near future, it's because you were spamming me with dozens of game announcements. Nothing personal. <laughs> I just don't care if you've leveled up or if you need horse manure for your crop or if your exotic <laughs> emu egg had some sort of mutant pterodactyl. <laughs> oh, you're a Farmville hater, yeah. aren't you? Well, I don't really care. I hate all of them. Uh, I, you're welcome to play the games, but my Facebook stream has become a never-ending stream of garbage like that. You know, so-and-so just uh, opened a new egg, and it has a diamond plunger <laughs> inside it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've just decided I'm going to start removing those people entirely. 
And I got a couple responses back. One of them was, well, you know, you can hide that, can't you? I said, well, I can on Facebook, but the, the Facebook API doesn't allow those to be hidden in uh, clients. So on my phone and on my desktop client, I see all that Absolutely. crap anyway. And secondly, if the average Facebook user has about 300 friends, if you decide that your enjoyment of a game is so important that you want to make 300 other people change their behavior, screw you. I don't want you on my list anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you're an equal opportunity hater. Yeah. And so I had a couple people who just said, well, I guess you're going to have to delete me then. And fine, I will. I don't have a problem with that. So, <laughs> well, so they gave you an ultimatum? They did. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to stop playing the game. See, I don't know. I guess, isn't it almost offensive to you that they're like, well, it's either my diamond plunger or Mark. Yeah, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Can get I'm rid of him. Who can pass up on a diamond plunger? Right. <laughs> no, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. My my pet peeve when it comes to Facebook, you know, I have a lot of family, my older aunts and uncles and stuff who are in like their 50s, 60s, 70s, and uh, they just don't understand spam on there. So like once a week you see the, the link that they send to every single one of their friends' walls. Like, I just want an iPad. Click here. <laughs> and then like a day later, my, my other aunt also has now right. allegedly won an iPad because she clicked on the link from her sister and whatever. And, and then one of them gets, if you got the thing that says, I want an iPad, don't <laughs> click it. I've been hacked. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't see that coming, Grandma. Yeah. <laughs> so I would yeah. say that's almost, I mean, I guess you, you can't blame them as much, but uh, that's almost as irritating as the Farmville. Uh, Seriously, go post. play Angry Birds. It's a fun game and it doesn't spam anybody. That's true. That's true. Yep. All right. Any other uh, complaints there, old man Mark? Uh, no, I'm I'm taking over for where Andy Rooney left off. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, um, Mark, I noticed the other day that you were looking for the old tweet deck. I did Virgin find that client. Finally, yes, and I actually use that. That's my main, um, you know, social networking tool, if you will. And my favorite feature in the whole thing is under settings. They have a um, global filter. And you choose from sources and anything that you put in there and start to type in, it will just filter out anything that comes from that. So you separate everything by commas. And so, you know, I have things in there like Castleville and Pioneer Trail and the word play. So anytime the word play is in one of the, you know, names of games and whatnot, it just filters it all out and never comes through. And then if I can just avoid checking facebook proper then uh i'm great yeah still i'm not willing to do that much effort <laughs> it's a lot easier just unfriend honestly how many of these people are really your friends anyway that's true I, I propose that we have some kind of filtering like that for real life mail so like when i go to my mailbox i can, do, I can filter out words like bill right payment bill. <laughs> attorney just never get him again it'll be fine that, that would be great well, speaking, of, I guess this maybe will tie into our, our conversation today, the idea of uh, junk mail and, and advertisements that come through the mail. Um, why don't we I'm get sorry, right did in? you just say advertisements? Advertisements. Have yeah, you been knighted to, recently and I'm I didn't notice to, it? <laughs> I'm trying to sound very cultured. <laughs> Advertisement. And I'm actually going to say color, but when I'm saying it, I'm thinking of a, a U in there somewhere. Color. Color. <laughs> Man, you ruined my, my great intro there, Mark. Sorry. So anyway... Uh, we it have really our, wasn't all that great. Just to, I know. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> uh, nothing about this show so far has been very show-stopping, so just let me go with it. Um, so our guest today is um, Frank Baker, and he is a consultant and also an author. We'll be talking about his upcoming book and also a media, media literacy educator um, for the last, he said, 20 years experience in, in education and technology. So he's going to have a lot to share with us, and particularly we're going to talk about media and why it's important to be focusing and teaching those kinds of things, how to interpret media and those kinds of stuff. Um, so let's bring him on before I, I flub anything else. Frank Baker, are you there, Frank? I am. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be with you all tonight. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, we're really looking forward to talking to you a little bit and seeing what you have. Because uh, I, I was telling Brian earlier, he called me earlier, and I don't think we've ever had a show where we talked a whole lot um, specifically about media and um, its impact. But it's funny because it, it's everywhere and it's something that is just part of our society and we don't think about it all the time. And unfortunately, I don't think um, most of um, our teachers have been adequately trained in how to introduce media literacy into the classroom. So um, they don't teach it because they aren't comfortable. Oh, absolutely. And it, um, I guess I'm jumping the gun a little bit. We're going to talk about your book shortly. But um, in the introduction of your book, you had an analogy and it said something about how um, fish don't realize that they're swimming in water. And it's kind of the same thing with media, right? It's all around us and we don't even realize how exposed we are to it and how easily, I guess, we could be manipulated by it. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I can't take credit for that analogy that comes from the great late Marshall McLuhan, who I'm going to guess most folks in the audience may already be familiar with. Um, but media literacy is, is one of those topics that uh, when I talk to teachers, and I talk to lots of teachers in workshop settings and professional development and at conferences, um, teachers uh, get it. It's not, it's not rocket science. They understand it. And I think they are anxious to um, engage their students in, in analyzing uh, media messages. Um, but again, uh, one of the points for writing this book was that most teachers haven't been trained. There aren't any resources in their school libraries. And um, although we can find elements of media literacy in almost every state standards, um, for the most part, it's not tested, and so it's not taught, and that's really unfortunate. Now, I was thinking about my school and the teachers that we have in there, and the first thing that comes to my mind is, if they're listening, they're probably going to go, what is media literacy? The term literacy, I'm familiar with. What does it mean to be media literate? So it's a great, great question. And um, on the website uh, that I created um, some time ago, the Media Literacy Clearinghouse, I define media literacy simply as critical thinking about media messages. And so many teachers tell me they do teach it. They just didn't know it was called media literacy. So critical thinking about media messages, but in fact, it's much more than just that. In fact, the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, which I'm hoping most of your audience is already familiar with, the Partnership mm -hmm. defines media literacy as both analyzing media messages and creating media products. And so, I know lots of teachers, and I'm sure you all do too, who are already engaging kids, for example, with uh, the so-called miniature flip cameras. And I think that's great. But if all teachers are doing is teaching kids how to um, 
grab images, record images, upload and download images, and put those images in a production. Uh, that's only creating media. That's not analyzing media. And so while I'm pleased that the cost of a so-called flip camera is inexpensive and easy to use and more and more teachers are, are, are using them, uh, we need to, media literacy requires that we balance the creation of media with analyzing media. And in fact, the new Bloom's digital taxonomy places creating at the top of the higher order thinking skills. And mm -hmm. it has recommendations for what students ought to be creating. And they ought to be creating podcasts and videos and blogs and all. In, in my book, I go on to say that media literacy is is much more. It's it's a set of skills. It's a set of knowledge and abilities. It's an awareness of personal media habits. How much time did you spend watching television last week? It's an understanding of how the media works. And uh, when I worked in television news before I worked in public education, it opened my eyes to production. It's it's an appreciation of of the power of the media and the influence. But it's also I think the ability to be discerning, to critically question what you read and what you view. It's, it's understanding how uh, a media producer creates meaning. It's healthy skepticism. It's uh, access to media. And it's also the ability, as I said earlier, to produce and create media. Well, I have a question for you. Now, you, you know, you, you say words like critical thinking and analysis. Those are higher order you know, skills. So that's something that as an English teacher, I teach English. As an English teacher, it makes my ears perk up because those are the kinds of things I'm always working with with my students. However, when you start talking about media literacy standards, I'm thinking about conversations I've had in the past with some of my colleagues when I talk about like the ISTE technology standards and they say, well, great, that's one more thing I'm going to have to teach now. I already have all these standards, plus they're changing now because of the core con or the common core standards that are coming. So now there's one more thing I have to learn. And, and that was also something that goes off in my head when I'm thinking of media literacy and, and teaching to those kinds of standards. So let me put you on the spot here for a second, Frank, as an ELA teacher, as an English teacher. If I were to come to you and say, well, give me an example of how I could incorporate media literacy into my class, what would you say? Like, what's a good example of how that could be incorporated without necessarily losing instructional time to a new standard? I would say to you as an English teacher, you teach persuasion. And one of the strongest um, persuasion texts out there is advertising. And uh, it's really great to engage students in um analyzing and creating advertising, whether that's a print ad or a video ad. And to take it one step further, here we are in the middle of January. Uh, before long, it's going to be time for the Super Bowl. The buzz is already out there on who has bought time in the Super Bowl game. And so here we have a popular culture text, the Super Bowl game, and advertising drives television. That's part of the economics. We know young people, we know everybody's going to be paying attention to the Super Bowl ads before the game, during the game, and after the game because they exist 
um, online and streamed. And so there's a great way for teachers to engage students, whether those students are in third grade or whether they are in 12th grade. Advertising is a huge part of their world, and advertising fits nicely under the persuasive propaganda persuasion techniques in most states' ELA standards. You know, the only time I've ever seen media, I was thinking about it just now, being used in school, I think the, the home and careers or home economics, I mean, it's called something different in every school, but I've seen them do a, a unit where they have to bring in magazine articles or ma magazine uh, advertisements, right, Mark? And um, <laughs> they, they uh, have to basically analyze them. You know, what's this really appealing to? Is it appealing to, um, you know, like the sex appeal piece or money or, you know, whatever, power, those kinds of things. And you're right, it's absolutely a persuasion um, activity, so it, it seems fairly easy to integrate that in. Yeah, and that's, that's a big part of media literacy. Uh, another big part, you know, here we are after the, uh, the first of the new year, and we're being bombarded by both diet and weight loss advertisements which again are, are ripe for study not, on an, not only in an English classroom but also in a health education classroom. And then if I can pull social studies into this, here we are um, less than a year away from the presidential election, uh, yet the political campaign ad advertisements, commercials are already out there. So again, uh, this is part of the uh, current events and popular culture and teachers now have more access than ever to these texts if they know how to use them, if they know how to access them, if they if the school doesn't block access to YouTube so they could download and save a presidential candidate's commercial or something he or she said in a debate. Uh, this is another great way to engage students in current events and also meeting those standards. What was that, this is just remind me, what was that magazine right around the 2008 election, Frank, me, this is right up your alley, that had the, the cover was Barack Obama and someone had monkeyed with the contrast on it to make him appear darker? Do you remember that? Well, the, 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 this sounds very much like the O.J. Simpson mugshot many years ago in which both Time and Newsweek magazine had manipulated uh, the um, the contrast and the brightness and and one cover made his mugshot look darker more menacing than the other did and you're bringing up a really good point which uh which i use in all of my workshop which is visual literacy so we we have uh, magazine covers uh, that could be incorporated into the classroom. And I know most schools get magazines. Most teachers read magazines at home or in the dentist's office. And how often do teachers think about bringing a magazine cover in to engage students um, in an analysis? This, this is a uh, persuasive text. I'll ask teachers in my own workshops, in what way is a magazine cover an advertisement? Because when I go to the bookstore um, or to the library and look at all the magazines there on the shelf, they start to scream at me. They have techniques that, um, that, that, that really do. They scream at me. So how is this magazine going to get you to pick it up and read it? And so uh, one of the things that I do in my workshops with teachers is I will bring uh, magazine covers in and engage them in an analysis of it. And we'll, we'll look at it as an informational text. Um, what colors are used, what font style, what size, what's the layout, um, who do you recognize, um, uh, 
really to go a little bit deeper than I think most teachers have ever been taught. Uh, yet, um, magazines are all over um, our culture. And, and in fact, uh, the celebrity culture that's on the magazines is a great way to, to bring that into the classroom as well. So I, I think uh, we as educators have more opportunities today to look and see what photograph is in the morning newspaper or on the morning news website that we frequent? What's who is the latest celebrity on that magazine cover? How can I pull that into the classroom? What are the ads? I'm, I'm holding uh, magazines for the month of January, which are inundated with diet and weight loss ads. Highly persuasive. Not only are they in the magazines, but they are all over uh, cable television and our and our local TV stations. I thought we already broke all of our New Year's, New Year's resolutions. It is the tenth or seventeenth <laughs> yeah. of the of the month, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, my favorite part of media. If I were to teach this to teachers or even to my students, just to prove how manipulated uh, advertisements can be, I would pull up all the Photoshop failures, the, the Photoshop fails. Have you ever seen those, Frank, where like they'll have someone that's supposed to be extra slim and you look real close and someone went crazy with like the lasso tool and cut off like <laughs> half their leg or something by mistake, or there'll be someone in the background that has like a third arm because they forgot to Photoshop it out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I I'm those. a big fan of, of those as well. I have an entire uh, page on the Media Literacy Clearinghouse and it's called Is Seeing Believing? And this is designed to look at the manipulation of images throughout history. So not only do we look at contemporary photoshopped uh, images, but we go back in time. And, you know, for example, during the Civil War, um, one of Matthew Brady's photographers actually moved the body of a soldier from one location to another. So uh, the point is... Uh, We've been manipulating images since the beginning of photography, and that's another thing that I want uh, teachers to, to be aware of, that, that the photoshopping, the digital alteration, is not a, a contemporary ideal. We've been manipulating images forever. Uh, Stalin erased enemies from his photographs. Um, it, it happens all of the time, and I've got plenty of examples on that website, which, again, I'm trying to uh, help teachers uh, by providing a, a webpage which has lots of resources. Sources. And so for educators who might go to the Media Literacy Clearinghouse, they're going to find um, categories in almost every subject discipline. And within each of those categories, they would find lesson plans, articles, uh, recommended books, because frequently I present in school library media centers and I scan the bookshelves and because I'm teaching media literacy I'm looking for books about the media and unfortunately I find few if any books on the shelf for students or the shelf for teachers so um, uh, we need uh, I think we need more material inside the school but we also need uh, teachers to, to say yeah you know teaching media literacy is important I, I don't want my student to be fooled by a politician's uh, slick 30 second commercial, nor do I want them to be fooled by a 30-second uh, cell phone ad. Well, does anybody use libraries as anything other than a, an extra computer lab anymore? Oh, uh, you'd find the school library community that would really um, inundate your email inbox with, with uh, the answer. Yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, I think uh, the book is alive and well in the school library media center, but like Regular bookstores, um, 
they're starting to introduce e-readers and tablets as well as another way uh, to engage students in literacy. Well, I, I want to go back, and I, I have both a question and uh, something we failed to do, and that is we're you know some 15 or so minutes into your interview here, and we didn't bother to, to mention who you are and why we should be listening to you. Uh, well, you us, can edit it, can't you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd rather just leave all the mistakes right out there. So uh, could you just tell us, uh, what are your credentials? Why should we care what you have to say? What, what is your expertise in the field? Who is Frank Baker? Well, I just got out of prison last week. Okay, good. <laughs> that, that's actually how Frank and I met. Because <laughs> um, you were stealing wires. and I was stealing telephone <laughs> wire. <laughs> My background is I worked in uh, television news right out of college uh, for nine years. Uh, and I found, I found myself, uh, of all places, in Orlando, Florida. And um, I, I jumped ship. I got out of television news and joined the public school system in Orlando where I worked in instructional television and distance learning. And it was while I was there, and this was in the mid-80s, that I got wind of something called media literacy. And I got very interested in helping. I saw lots of teachers um, using film and video in the classroom inappropriately. And I wanted to try to do something. So I actually approached the superintendent one day and said, could I do a workshop uh, around media literacy? And he said, yeah, of course. And one of the first workshops I ever conducted was called TV Toy Commercials, How They Influence Kids. And I'll never forget an elementary teacher raised her hand and said, uh, Frank, you mean I could be recording those commercials during Saturday morning television and using them in the classroom? And I said, sure. And she said, well, how would I use them? And I said, well, we're supposed to teach the techniques of persuasion. And she shook her head, yeah. And I said, what about the techniques of production? You know, where you put the camera has meaning. Uh, um, lighting. Uh, sound effects, all of those things. And so uh, that began my media literacy uh, career. Uh, later on, I attended a national media literacy conference. And I actually stood up at the town hall meeting at, at the end of the conference, and I said, you know, if we want students to be media literate, someone should look at the state's standards around the country and see what those standards say. And I did. I came back to South Carolina and I did a content analysis of all 50 states teaching standards. And uh, the result was an op-ed that was published in Education Week in 1999 in which we found elements of media literacy in the st teaching standards for English language arts, social studies, and in health. Those are the three primary disciplines in which you'll find elements of media literacy. And so I, I built a website called the Media Literacy Clearinghouse, whose URL is my name, frankwbaker.com, and uh, subsequently um, uh, was elected uh, president of a national organization called the National Association of Media Literacy Education, whose website is www namely.net that's n-a-m-l-e dot net um, I chaired a, a national conference uh, many years ago um, I wrote uh, uh, three books and, uh, and I continue to lecture around the, the country um, uh, to teachers and to conferences um, and schools ab about this topic because I think it's um, it's it's undertaught and not fully um, yet appreciated, even in the year 2012. Media literacy is still not widespread in American schools, but I think it's becoming 
more and more important as teachers look at how uh, little our young people think critically, how how um, uh, how how they don't have any healthy skepticism, and they tend to believe everything they see, read, and hear, and and they believe if it's on a screen, they believe it. So, in, in some ways, it's called screen education. How do we teach them to question um, what comes up on the screen? Um, I maintain that, among other things, media literacy helps pull back this curtain to reveal how media are made. I don't think teachers today engage students in, well, how is a situation comedy made? How is a documentary made? How is a magazine put together or an internet webpage? I think one of the few ways we engage students in media making from start to finish is PowerPoint, where they start with a blank slate and they decide what color the background is and what size the font is and what photographs or images they're going to embed and how many slides are going to make up my presentation. Other than PowerPoint, they don't get any uh, training in, in well, how, how is that film made? That film that, that they watched on their mobile phone or went to the movie theater this weekend and, and uh, so I'm spending a lot of time lately uh, again, with English teachers on, on the language of film and film literacy. So, uh, and I'm sitting here with um, the companion uh, to the new film, Hugo, um, because it's a, it's a wonderfully made film, and this is a companion book that takes readers behind the scenes to how the Martin Scorsese film was made. Well, I have a question, uh, sort of a follow-up. Uh, what you're describing sounds an awful like lot like the stuff I, I graduated uh, you know uh, years ago and we did a unit in our English class for uh, uh, several months on propaganda where we talked about these techniques sure. how, how is your digital me- media uh, digital liter uh, excuse me media literacy curriculum different than the standard propaganda persuasion stuff that we've been doing all along I think the propaganda techniques are a uh, part of media literacy. Um, so if, if you look at uh, English language art standards, you'll see um, the phrase uh, persuasion techniques, techniques of persuasion, propaganda techniques. Uh, that same phrase comes up in many states' social studies standards. So that is part of what we're talking about. But we're also talking about bias, stereotypes, body image. Um, uh, th- those are all areas that uh, t- teachers could be addressing through media literacy. Okay. Well, I want to move on to something else that teachers, um, I guess, have to be addressing all the time, that's standards. And you mentioned how a lot of your work is based around some work you did in the past with all the state standards, but it seems like that's going to be irrelevant pretty soon because all those state standards are going away and it's being shifted to the Common Core. Have you looked at the Common Core standards and how media literacy plays into that? I have, and I'm very disappointed. Um, when I first saw the draft of the Common Core ELA, English Language Arts Standards, mm-hmm. there were no references to visual literacy, visual representation, or to media literacy. And I started a petition drive to try to get those folks who were writing this national document to wake up, to open their eyes, because they completely ignored the fact that today's young people are learning more through visual text. Uh, I'm afraid the folks that wrote the 
common core ELA standards um, could have been living in the 60s because uh, the document reads uh, like it's, 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 we're living in a world of, of, of just printed text. Um, I, I'm a consultant to the National Council of Teachers of English, and of all of the national organizations, NCTE has endorsed the teaching of non-print text since the 70s. In fact, if you go back to the 1930s, they were advocates for teaching um, film in the English classroom. So I'm very disappointed, uh, but I'm not surprised because I uh, subsequently learned that the authors, you know, here, here's, here's the uh, quintessential media literacy question. Who is the author of the message? And the author of the Common Core ELA standard, the authors are textbook publishers and assessment people. Not one classroom teacher was involved in the initial writing. Now, the Common Core people will tell you, oh, but we sent the document. It was available to teachers all over the country to give comment on. Wonderful. But if the teachers out in the field are teaching media, haven't been trained in media, how are they going to recommend that this national document include visual and media literacy? So uh, to say I'm disappointed is, is an understatement because I can point you to my website where um, almost 100% of the state's ELA standards now have references to media literacy, yet that's all being wiped out by this national Common Core ELA document. Yeah, don't take it as a personal slight. That Common Core, there's a lot of things they ignored. There's really no, um, they don't acknowledge anything like, you know, socioeconomic status or diversity or all those things that really truly do make every school district a little different. They're just pretending that there's a level playing field. So I have a funny feeling that that whole document is going to be changed a whole, or it's going to have to be changed a whole lot or else it's just going to implode. So hopefully they add some media literacy stuff into it before that happens. I also have faith in the classroom teacher because he or she already recognizes what's missing. So there's another great media literacy question is what am I not being told? What do I not see? Why is it not there? And I think teachers uh, today realize that the media is the world of our students and we have to include um, the media. In fact, there's a wonderful quote from uh, Jim Burke, who's the author of the great book, The English Teacher's Companion. He has a chapter on media literacy, and he urges English teachers, for example, to embrace advertisements and movies and all the other media. He says those are uh, things uh, we as teachers need to embrace if we're going to maintain our credibility in the years to come. So a teacher who's not teaching with media, I have a feeling, is uh, going to be not with us for very long. Well, speaking of books, how about you tell us um, a little bit about your book and um, you know how it relates to this topic of media literacy and you know how it might help us in terms of when we read it, what are we going to get out of it and then be able to apply in, in our classrooms? Well, thank you uh, um, for mentioning the book, and thank you again for the opportunity to talk about it. The title of the new book uh, is Media Literacy in the K-12 Classroom. It's published by ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. And, and this is the book that I always wanted to write. This is the media 
illiteracy 101, no matter what you teach, um, if it's English, social studies, math, science, art, health, this uh, social studies, this is the book that would introduce media literacy to you and give you some ideas about how to incorporate it uh, into instruction. Um, I mentioned math just as uh, as an aside because I was with some math teachers recently, and they said, um, you know, the word media is not in in our media is not in our math standards. And I said, I understand that uh, completely, uh, but let me give you an example. I said to these math educators, um, the television ratings come out once a week, and um, the ratings are used uh, by advertisers. Um, to, to set rates. And so I said to these math teachers, does anybody here know what the, the television rating represents? And, and the ratings and the shares are percentages. And uh, I think um, if our young people are paying attention to television, which I think they are, they watch a lot of television, I think this is a great way to incorporate media literacy into the math classroom by having students uh, look at the ratings and share every week of shows. And I can't think of any better way to make uh, learning relevant than to engage students in, in uh, um, uh, the, the popular television that's out there and, and looking at the economics of it. So my book was initially written for the K-12 librarian, that person who was also uh, sometimes given the responsibility of teaching uh, media literacy. But my publisher asked me to, to widen my purview. So, so, the, so you will find uh, chapters in the book that deal with uh, visual literacy, uh, deal with advertising, that deal with moving images, and they deal with uh, bias and uh, representation and stereotypes. So it's meant to be this introduction into media literacy. And um, uh, I've, I've actually, on my website, posted the foreword and the introduction to the book so that uh, uh, people who are listening could go to frankwbaker.com and go ahead and, and, and read uh, the first uh, uh, introduction there. Yeah, and of course we'll post uh, the direct links in our show notes, but Frank, I have a question too as far as the book goes. Do you, are you basically um, explaining what it is or is it almost going to be used as like a teaching tool for the teachers? Like if they get your book, does it give them ideas or examples or things that they could be using with their students, or is it more just like the theory and the concepts behind it that you focus on? Well, I'll, t I'll tell you, it's really both. I would say it's about 10% of what is media literacy. Where does it fit? And, and the rest of the book are examples. So when I said uh, reading a magazine cover, that's covered in, in visual literacy. Uh, the manipulation of images, which we talked about little bit is also included in, visual, in, in uh, visual literacy, as well as um, bogus websites. Uh, what do teachers need to know? What do our students need to know? And here's a perfect example. Um, this one's in the book. Um, if your listeners go to www.martinlutherking.org, uh, and since this is the month in which we commemorate the birth of Dr. King, and lots of students are doing projects in which they have to go out on the web and find information about Dr. King. A lot of students will probably stumble upon this particular website. Now, uh, when students get to the website, at the very top of it, it says students take our MLK quiz. But if you look closely at the website, you will find some clues, some words, some inappropriate words that might lead you to question whether this website is legitimate or not. Going back to the 
important media literacy question, who is the author? Who created this website? And if you scroll down to the bottom of that website, you will find in smallest font the, the phrase hosted by Stormfront. And if you Google Stormfront, you will find that it is a white Aryan nation organization. They bought the URL martinlutherking.org years ago, and they have, are putting out lies and, and disinformation. Now, I know students are going to uh, land on this page doing lo- legitimate research. And if we know students, uh, once they click on an embedded link, which will take them someplace in, and take them someplace else, they might spend 30 minutes or an hour or more on a website that does nothing but deliver misinformation and then they've wasted their time so I, I, I'm a str- the strongest possible um, advocate for teaching uh, young people the critical thinking information literacy questioning skills uh, who, who created this website why did they create it what techniques are they using to make this uh, believable you know who benefits from it we already know Stormfront benefits from it. So there's another example of, of trying to engage students um, in what I call information literacy skills. Well, you're starting to tie into now the idea of digital citizenship, being a good digital citizen. And, and that's another one of those topics, again, going back to what I said earlier, um, in addition to now media literacy standards and technology standards and common core standards now as well, Digital citizenship is one of those things, too, where when you say to a teacher, well, it's your responsibility to teach kids how to be safe and behave online, they look at you and say, well, I don't have time for that either. But you're right. All these things start to tie in together because really, ultimately, what you're talking about is being a good digital citizen, knowing how to interpret what you see and decide whether or not it's reliable. Absolutely. And I would say that these are lifelong skills. And any teacher who says to himself or herself, I don't have time to teach this, um, I think is, is, again, doing a disservice to um, uh, their students. So um, we all realize and appreciate that that we are surrounded by, by media. Uh, a, a, as you said, uh, as Marshall McLuhan said, the fish swimming in the ocean is oblivious uh, to the fact that the, the water is its air and the water is its food. And so we swim in this world of media every day from the moment we w- uh, wake up to the moment we go to sleep at night. We are surrounded by media, yet media, the teaching of and the teaching about media um, have not um, found a stronghold in uh, American classrooms, and that's unfortunate because it, it, it is already taught in the provinces of Canada as well as the schools uh, in the United Kingdom and the schools of Australia. So we've, so we've got some excellent uh, models for teaching media literacy everywhere else but in the United States. Now, I can think of all kinds of different answers to my next question, but I'm curious to what your opinion is on when, you know, what age or grade level or um, when do we start teaching students about media literacy? When is it important for them? Um, And if we wait, what's the impact? That kind of thing. Well, I'm I'm an advocate for starting as early as possible. I I would start um, even in the first grade. And I've had early childhood educators ask me, well, what would you do? And, and, and my answer is always, 
I, if I was if I was uh, teaching first graders, I think I would engage them uh, early on in a in a study of signs. Uh, what are signs? Where do you find signs in your neighborhood? Um, do all signs have words? And those that don't, why don't they? What color are the signs? Is the McDonald's uh, a sign? Is a billboard a sign? Is a billboard an advertisement? And we can begin this conversation at an early possible age. The other way to, I think, to incorporate that, and, and uh, many teachers already do this with young students, and that is to have students bring in the cereal box from the morning's breakfast and use that as a popular culture text that can be studied and can be deconstructed. And at the same time that we're looking at the images on that cereal box and the words and the colors and the layout, we can flip that box over to its side and start to do some nutritional um, uh, label uh, literacy as well. What makes this a healthy choice, which I think is extremely important. And, and uh, the, the other side of the, of the question you ask is, what happens if we don't teach it? I think we are already seeing the results of what happens when we don't teach it. We have uh, an obesity epidemic in this country, and uh, uh, media in part has been blamed because too many of our young people uh, come home from school or on Saturdays they sit on the couch and they watch television and what do they see? They see products that are mostly unhealthy. There's not a balance in their diet. Um, we see the impact of, of violent programming on some young people. Um, the studies are pretty clear that uh, in, in some young people who are exposed to violent material, whether that's on television or in video games, has an influence. And we have to be aware of that. In fact, the um, American Academy of Pediatrics has been very strong um, in its pronouncements that we, that the, the, the pediatricians in this country have to, to be just as concerned with what young people consume through their eyes and ears as they consume through their mouths. And so uh, media has, has been elevated as a critically important topic in this country. And I think it's no, no more, uh, the place that is more, more important than ever is in, in our nation's classrooms. And so I, I'm, um, I'm trying to raise the visibility to spread the gospel of the importance of a media literate society. And while you're at it, could you please remind all the elementary school no, teachers you not to use Comic Sans for every single thing they print? <laughs> uh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I don't know, like, because you talked earlier about the importance of font and what they mean. Just drop. I was thinking about the um, the lower elementary talking about you know starting in first grade or you know even kindergarten and things like that and just asking the simple question of you know having them identify but they think the next step to them understanding is first start by just holding up one of those signs whether it be a cereal box or anything like that and asking how this makes you feel sure because how you feel at that age is something that you're starting to be aware of. It actually relates to so many other parts of our lives and, you know, learning at that age. Just, you know, how do you feel and what do you notice about this? And maybe there's a slow correlation between the two that will be, you know, recognized, I guess. You sound like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I do have sweaters like that. 
<laughs> He's wearing a cardigan right now. <laughs> In South Florida, that's right. right. <laughs> Will you be my neighbor? <laughs> now you're starting to sound like Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't be Mark's neighbor. He's going to unfriend you if you play Farmville. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I guess we've covered everything we want to talk about there. I was really hoping that we'd get on a, a, a hate rant against Comic Sans, but you guys shot me all down. I, I'm a bit of a font nerd when it comes to that kind of stuff, but um, I'm out of things to talk about. Uh, is there anything else before we let you go, Frank, that uh, you want to impress upon um, our listeners? Well, um, it's going to be an un- unlucky 2012 if they don't buy my book. <laughs> there we go. So, so the Mayans were half right. It's not that the calendar ended. They're just waiting to see how the book sales did. Right. Well, so, I, I do make my living. Um, I'm, I'm an, an education consultant, so I make my living by uh, going to schools and to conferences and to school districts during professional development day. So I hope if I've piqued anybody's curiosity out there um, – you can send me an email, and my email contact information is on my website, because I'd love to hear from those who um, are listening to this program who uh, may want to know more, um, because I'm uh, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is, is I enjoy hearing from educators who are already teaching this or want to teach it and, and want to know how to get started. So I'm always anxious to uh, hear from educators, and I always respond to emails. In fact, my wife keeps saying, what are you still doing on that internet at midnight? And I, I'm, 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 I'm not looking at those websites that you think I am, honey. I'm, I'm responding to educators all over the world. I, I get emails from all over the world. And it's nice to, to get emails from folks uh, who, who believe that media literacy education is, is a, a, an important 21st century skill. Sure. And the book, again, is Media Literacy in the K-12 Classroom. And it's going to be available on Amazon, but it hasn't been released yet. Is that right? When is it going to be available? It's available after January 17th. Oh, good. And that's actually our release date for this show. So um, as you're listening to this, you can hop on the computer and um, hit up Frank's book right on Amazon there. Uh, Quick question. Is it going to be available for um, e-readers, Kindle, that kind of thing? You know, I'm not sure yet. Um, uh, uh, The publisher has not yet told me. I suspect that it will be, but it may not be right away. Yeah, that's kind of the way it goes with new releases, I think. All right. All right. Well, Frank, thank you again very much for joining us. Um, and again, you can find all of his information. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but it's frankwbaker.com. Thanks for having me, guys. And I, it really was a pleasure talking to you and, and being part of the conversation. Thank you. Uh, take care, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. So again, that was Frank W. Baker. Uh, you can check all of his stuff out and find links to the intro and the foreword to his new book and also a, a link to take you to the Amazon page so you can buy it all at frankwbaker.com um, or I believe I, I googled it and I think it came up also um, as uh, medialiteracyclearinghouse.com but I could be wrong but that's that's where you can find all of this stuff. Uh, so let's move right into the tips of the week and Brian I think you're going to headline this today is that right? Uh, yeah I found one. Um, it's like a twofer. I can't have- yeah, I can't even remember, you know, where it was that it, it came to me. Um, but I do remember that it was yesterday, my first day back to work. And um, it is a website called Teachers Pay Teachers. And this originally, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, wait, what does that mean? 
And if you go to the website, Teachers Pay Teachers, essentially it is a site. Um, actually, what it was that you know first piqued my interest was um, a note that um, their highest grossing teacher actually made six-digit income from the website. And I'm thinking, I can't think of one teacher around here that's making a six-digit income, let alone six-digit income as their, you know, perhaps secondary income, if you will. Is that what you mean? um, Yeah, a couple years back, I uh, over the summer, because I wasn't quite making six figures during my school day, (laughs) my, my school job, I... Uh, a couple of years back during the summer, I mowed lawns at a golf course. Um, maybe I should have instead taken up a part-time job on this website and just started putting up all my old stuff. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, if oh, you go I to the te- tan, give me a good tan for the summer. <laughs> exactly, which is definitely worth its weight in gold. Um, uh, and you can buy spray on tan for a, a six-figure salary. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The um, so if you go to the website, you know the first thing that sticks out to me is there's um like three boxes there, and then there's seventeen thousand eight hundred and forty-six items for free. You know, because when I saw teachers pay teachers, and I'm thinking, well, this is a great resource. We can tell our teachers to go here and and pay for lesson plans or ideas or worksheets or whatever. And I was like, well, this is a tightwad teacher podcast, and perhaps you know that won't work. And then I realized, well, there are free items there, so that's good. Um, but essentially, what you can do is you can go here, and then you can pay. Um, to get lesson plans and activities and resources and things like that. You can also take ideas and things that you've created and offer them for sale or for free here. But it it seems to be a pretty good clearinghouse of just different ideas and things like that. Now, um, granted, I haven't paid for anything and and downloaded a ton of things, so I don't know what the, um, the quality of the different materials are, and I'm sure it differs by, you know, the person you're getting them from. But um, it's another great um, location for resources from, you know, language arts to math, science, social studies, arts and music, foreign language, specialty, and a whole, mo- a whole lot more. You know, this actually might be someone that we can get on for a future show because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. First of all, I wonder, is that even legal? Because I was always under the impression that if I'm creating units or I'm creating lesson plans and I'm doing that at school and the school, like if it's say like a workshop or if they give me planning time, I was always under the impression that that work belonged to the school. That depends on your contract. And there are a number of uh, lawsuits and, and, and things going on that, that question the validity of those uh, contracts, even if they are in place. Yeah. It's just, it's an interesting thing that they have a website that does that. And then, uh, take a step further, like almost like, I don't know if you want to say the ethical implications, but there's so many other sites where you have teachers helping teachers. And it's really that whole idea of that professional learning network. We have a lot of people talking about the PLN on Twitter. And um, I'm part of like the English companion Ning, where if I want a lesson plan, I go on there and say, I'm looking for help on, you know, theme in Hamlet or whatever. And people help with that. So I'd be curious to see if we got someone from the Teachers Pay Teachers website on how they would address that those kinds of um, issues. Yep, leave it to me to find the thing to encourage people to do things illegal. Well, and I guess this, even though it is pay, 
technically, I would say that this falls not only under the tightwad teacher, it's almost like the money grubber teacher, right? Because instead of <laughs> saving money, by proxy, you're actually saving money because you're making money by selling all the stuff that you've already done with your own students. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's it's funny. It certainly flies in the face of our uh, love of open source, but let's face it, some people will not share anything unless there's something to gain from it. So if it makes them feel better about getting 20 bucks for it, who says you say you can't then give it away once they give it to you? Oh, that's, oh, that's another good question to have for this site is, yeah, what liability do you have or is it under, would it be copyright? I don't know what it would be considered, but yeah, could you share it freely after you buy it from someone? That's a really good point. Who, who remain or retains the, um, the intellectual property rights? Well, technically under U.S. law, the moment you create something, you own the copyright to it. So that, that's a pretty cut and dried answer. All right, I'd like to amend my recommendation and only <laughs> go to this go website to, to look at the free items. <laughs> now, well, it would be interesting if somebody in our audience who has their stuff up there for pay would like to let us know what the rationale is. You know, send us an email, um, you know, contact us and let us know because that uh, we're all, the three of us, kind of having a hard time wrapping our heads around why you would expect compensation for it. Uh, let us know why you think your work is deserving of, 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 Re, uh, of compensation when other people may not be. Yeah, it's just it, it's interesting, and this is not the only site that does. As I have seen these in the past, you know, same idea where you can upload lesson plans, and I've always shied away from them, partly because I I always make my own stuff anyway. But if I do need help, I know other avenues to explore that give me free help or free you know content or sure. whatever. But yeah, it's certainly something interesting and uh, definitely something that I think we should probably explore in another episode at some point. Sure. Well, speaking of email and contacting us, how about we uh, tell people how to do so? Yeah, that's a good idea. Go ahead. Oh, don't mind if I do. Um, well, we have uh, a few ways. The primary way would be go to elementop.com slash tightwadteacher. There you'll find links to our Twitter accounts and email and, and everything that you could possibly find. And um, in addition to that, you, of course, can find other Element OP shows. So um, definitely like to put in a plug for the other shows. Um, check them out. Um, my favorite other one would be a Tightwad Tech podcast because, you know, it's a little nerdy and I, um, I like that. So um, other ways, of course, are Twitter. You can find John at John Mikulski. You can find me at Bruger, and you can find Mark at Mark Cockrell. Um, of course, you can do the Facebook.com um, slash Element Opie, or you can do a quick little search there for Tightwad Teacher and like our page. We'd really appreciate that. It makes us feel good and, and warm and fuzzy inside. And, of course, the new Element Opie mobile app available on Android at the moment and soon to come to iOS. Um, if we can get Apple to say that they like us. Uh, lastly, phone number is 559-IAM-OP. All right, well, I guess that about wraps it up for this week. Anything else you want to add before we, we say goodbye, either of you gentlemen? No, I think you covered it all. All right. <laughs> there was dead silence, the awkward silence. I, okay, I'm, well. I'm shying away from anything after getting destroyed on my tech tip. <laughs> I, yeah, we, we really shot you down on that. That wasn't my intention. It, you know, it's a it's an interesting thing to know that it exists out there. Um, but I don't. I just don't know if I would pay for any of that stuff. Just but. let it be known that uh, Brian was the only only one who brought a tip at all. 
So yeah. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. Well, I uh, would say it's it's no typewriter app. No, I know that you've pretty much peaked with your your tips. That was like <laughs> the second per, per show you were on. All right. Well, uh, I, I guess for now, then we will leave it there. And uh, for this week, I will say this is John, and I'm signing off. And this is Brian. Good night, mates. Good night, everybody. Thanks for doing this.